Welcome to Beyond the Noise, a Source Scott podcast with me, David Jameson, looking at issues in the news in more depth. I'm very glad to be joined uh, this week, just days away from the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden by Michael uh, Below, who is a US political sociologist uh, and who has uh, written on the American right, the mutations on the uh, right in the United States. And I want to talk to him about the future of the American right um, after Trumpism, after the events that we've seen uh, on Capitol Hill and after the inauguration of uh, Joe Biden. Michael, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> obviously, uh, a bit over a week ago, there was quite quite the spectacle in Washington, D.C., when the hardcore supporters of Trump and his program uh, invaded uh, the legislature in, in the United States. Unusual scenes uh, for what is in many ways the sort of world vision of what a democratic uh, state looks like. Um what what are the immediate shockwaves on the American right like uh, over this, um, and what implications does it have for the Republican Party and for the coalition that was established around the passing of Trump? Yeah, I mean the um, <clears throat> the short term, at least the short term shockwaves are uh, very considerable for um, the Republican Party. So I mean, the first thing out of the gate, right, was uh, you know some of the things I think are most um, significant uh, is that the uh, organizations of capital um, strongly rebuked Trump and um, the Republican Party uh, for having, um, <clears throat> you know, in their language, incited insurrection, committed sedition, etc. So you had a statement from the National Association of Manufacturers, for instance, the premier um, uh, lobbying organization of the capitalist class in America, um, put out a statement um, you know, calling it, uh, you know, I believe they were referred to Trump as engaging in seditious behavior. Um, so this is a, uh, an unusually strong rebuke from the capitalist class, the organized capitalist class, uh, a bunch of companies, um, you know, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, um, uh, you know, major financial players, uh, announced that they would be, um, either cutting off their uh, uh, campaign contribution. So in, the, in American elections, of course, corporations can make direct campaign contributions uh, to politicians running for office and also do so through political action committees and so on. So the election system is just awash with this capitalist money. But many capitalists have said that they're going to either stop, um, you know, suspend campaign contributions altogether to anybody. Um, and a number specifically singled out um, uh, ceasing uh, political contributions to those Republican politicians who voted to overturn the Electoral College results uh, last Wednesday, which is which was the um, the vote, of course, that precipitated the um, the uh, riot at the Capitol. Uh, was that that was what the the demonstrators were attempting to prevent was the certification of the Electoral College votes. Um, the um, you know Deutsche Bank, uh, who is the who is D Donald Trump's primary lender, has announced that they would cut off um, any business relationships with him. Uh, the PGA, the you know the Golf Association, uh, who had a contract to have their um, uh, 
you know, their finals at a Trump uh, golf course have canceled their contract. The city of New York has canceled all their contracts uh, with Trump. Uh, so of course he's a developer, a real estate developer there. Um, and, um, you know, so the, the list of companies um, who have announced that they will um, not be playing ball with these people anymore has been growing. And of course you get it from tech as well with um, uh, Twitter and uh, so on, uh, pulling the president's account. Um, Amazon Web Services uh, pulling uh, Parler, the sort of uh, right-wing alternative to Facebook. Uh, it's this app called Parler. Um, they, um, you know, pulled Parler from its services. Basically, basically, um, you know, stopped the ability of the app to accept any new um, accounts. Um, you know, things of this nature. So th there's been this uh, this uh, really disciplinary sort of response from capital on the Republican party. So I think that's the first element of uh, the sort of aftermath of um, the riot at the Capitol. Um, it's tempting, I think it's tempting, especially for Democrats to sort of see this as the death of the Republican party, which they've announced prior. You know, they said the same thing in um, uh, 2015 when Trump got the nomination. Uh, they said the same thing in 2008 when Obama won the election with both houses of uh, Congress. Um, I don't. I don't think there's any reason to go as far as all that, right? To say that this is the this is finally the the last nail in the coffin for the Republican Party. I think these are temporary setbacks, and I think that this frees a lot of um, uh, Republican legislators to, um, uh, you know, sort of pursue a different path without Trump. I think they've, I think many of them have felt uh, uh, Trump as a burden that they've had to tolerate. Um, and uh, now they don't have to constantly be, be fielding all this stuff um, about, you know, Trump makes some, tr some tweet and then they're brought to account by some reporter. They have to explain, oh, do you support this, this insane thing that Trump tweeted at 3.20 a.m.? You know, they don't have to deal with any of that anymore. It did. Um, it, it, it did strike me um, when the uh, capital was overrun. I thought this is, in some ways, really let the Republican Party off the hook, because the situation they were looking at was, um, you know, spending the next couple of years trying to untangle themselves piece by piece from the kind of hardcore Trump base, um, which is a very substantial part of the Republican vote, huge, um, and this makes it easier for them to to kind of. To, to put a bit of distance between themselves and Trump uh, and to say to people, you know, that that is not a winning strategy that Trump was pursuing. We need to return to a more, uh, you know, serious form of politics and so on. And in a lot of ways, um, you know, it's possible at least that Trump has actually reduced his footprint in the Republican Party in the years to come. Yeah, I think that that's um, a strong possibility. I think the Republican Party has got a couple of um, uh, strategic paths or options, if you will, um, coming out of this. Um, and it's, it, in one way, you can sort of see it congealing across the, the Senate versus House of Representatives Republican caucuses. So in the Senate, for example, um, Trump received incredibly weak support for his project around overturning the election. Um, you know, it was something like just a tiny handful, I don't know, 10 or fewer, something like that, senators uh, voted to um, overturn the election results. And he lost key supporters there. So Tom Cotton, for example, um, 
uh, what's her name from Georgia, uh, Kelly Loeffler, uh, who lost the election in Georgia, um, the runoff election. Um, and so he, this, this, the Senate really is emerging as this kind of, um, uh, if you like, a moderate or establishment wing of the party leadership, whereas in the House it is going largely in the other direction, right? So in the House you had um, 10 out of 211 Republican legislators um, vote against uh, Trump on the election question. The rest voted for overturning the um, uh, electoral college result. And so in the House, you know, people are, it, the House is a much more democratic body, right? It's much more representative uh, directly. And so people there are much more sensitive to what the base is feeling, I think. And uh, they're all, and many of them are out of, coming out of, um, you know, cleverly drawn gerrymandered districts, which are easy Republican wins, uh, where in a lot of these places, um, you know, either in a, in a previous political era, Tea Party, people were winning uh, primaries in the Republican party and getting elected. And now sort of Trump people winning primaries and get, getting elected. So this radical wing of the party in the house. And so you have um, these two tendencies and there is going to be, I think, a deepening of the conflict between them in the party. So I think that the internal split in the party is made more serious. Um, and I think we're going to see more vicious primaries and stuff like that in the Republican Party between the sort of Trump wing and the people who are trying to distance themselves from that legacy. But in a way, getting Trump out of the picture, Trump himself out of the picture, I think even could help the Trump wing, right? They, you have these young, uh, more charismatic, uh, more sort of, if you like, talented um, conservative leaders who can sort of carry the mantle and uh, adopt the same basic uh, kinds of policy positions, which are really not so different in the end from standard Republican um, uh, positions, um, but you know they can they can offer a hard edge on immigration and refugees. They can offer um, you know this sort of um, uh, resentment politics around uh, um, you know the cities and black people and uh, you know. Um, kind of culture of police worship and stuff like that, that uh, the sort of Trump wing of the party has offered. Uh, they can offer all those things and they can they can do so, I think, without Trump. And so in, in a way, it's it sort of remains to be seen. I think this divide in the internal to the party has deepened um, and it could weaken the party in the short to medium term. Um, but the but the, uh, the sort of exit of Trump himself could could be a boon to sort of both elements in the in that split. Um, I, it's interesting because, I, I mean, a, a couple of months ago, Donald Trump achieved the largest Republican electoral coalition in the history of the United States, the second highest vote for any presidential candidate except for Joe Biden, of course. And that coalition wasn't just bigger, much bigger than his 2016 vote. It was also more diverse. So he got more LGBT voters he got more women voters, he got more black voters, and so on. He broke the mold of what was supposed to be the kind of structural limitations of Republican politics. And you're right, of course, that um, the death of the Republican Party has been predicted several times, you know, all, uh, already. Uh, and in fact, the, the Republican voter base seems to be continually expanding and expanding into areas where it shouldn't be able to go. You, you get sociologists uh, and so on in America who think that there's this sort of 
um, demographic limitation to, to, to right-wing politics. Um, and I, I assume, uh, and, and tell me if you think I'm right about this, that in the you know, brains in the Republican Party are thinking very seriously about how they grow into certain constituencies. Uh, the, uh, the Latin American community, you know, um, you know, both uh, immigrants and the, the children of immigrants who make up an increasing share of the American population seem to be one serious target area. And you get Republican intellectuals who say, you know, this is the future of, of the Republican Party. Um, how, how else do you think the right in America might seek to expand its appeal? You know, what, what might be its program? You also get some people, the sort of um, Tucker Carlson's of the world, who have kind of hallucinated into existence a kind of working class uh, republicanism, which points to areas of truth. There are working class constituencies where the Democrats can't seem to reach anymore and Trumpism could rely upon. Um, but in terms of actual program, in terms of actual policy, this working class Trumpism never arrives. Is that a serious avenue as well? Yeah, uh, Marco Rubio said that the Republican Party is going to be the multiracial party of the working class, <laughs> if you like. But uh, this is um, this represents one sort of um, uh, strategic path for the party in a way. I mean, it's mostly rebranding, um, of course, but um, you know, it it does it is going to come with you know the party spending serious campaign resources on uh, the these places that you mentioned where Trump. Um, you know, sort of overperformed. Uh, so, you know, um, making direct appeals to uh, black communities in the cities, where, you know, if you if you, um, I, I think the New York Times it was had these you know really sort of um, uh, useful maps showing the vote shift from 2016, and you um, impose the map over any sort of any sort of uh, American city that is characterized by, you know, highly conspicuous racial segregation. And you see the, an entire black community with little red arrows pointing to the right, right? So this, these entire um, uh, uh, sort of areas, black areas in the cities, virtually all of them uh, shifted right. Um, the, the most sort of um, significant shift or well, um, dramatic, I guess, shift was in the Texas Rio Grande Valley area, so the border areas, where you have these, um, you know, in some places close to 20 point swings for Trump. Not that he's getting major majorities in those areas, but he's getting 20 points more there than that he was in 2016. Um, in some of the poorest uh, counties in America that are, you know, 90, 95% Mexican American. Um, the, the, Democratic Party um, and the Republican Party, I think, are um, dealing with very a very similar kind of electoral dilemma in terms of who is it that they're going to try to appeal to and what are the costs of appealing to them. The uh, Biden campaign um, strategy was to make an appeal to the suburbs um, and to white affluent people in the suburbs. And it paid off. It totally paid off in the sense that he won the presidency, of course. It it faltered in the sense that that strategy did not win them the victories legislatively in the in the House uh, that they wanted. Uh, they they lost ground there. Um, but, uh, you know, the, to the extent that they uh, spend resources um, 
on campaigning for the white suburbanites um, and craft their uh, policy positions to appeal to white suburbanites. You know, they're losing some of these people in the working class that they might otherwise be picking up. They're sort of ceding ground, if you like, to the Republican Party. Well, the Republican Party now faces a choice that's very similar. Uh, with Trump out of the picture, there's a big opportunity to win back a lot of those previously Republican voters in the suburbs. You know, you can sort of um, take back those, you know, those Georgia people, right, in the Atlanta suburbs that delivered a victory to Biden. Um, you can take back those uh, uh, white suburban voters in suburban Dallas and Houston that Biden won. Um, you know, you can win all those people back. And so you could have a kind of a retrenchment uh, in the Republican Party coalition that it, it looks more like it did before. Um, but it is it is a strategic option on the table for them to um, sort of pump the gas on uh, peeling off these um, historic bases of, of Democratic support. Uh, and in, in some cases, you know, particularly with black voters, right? You don't have to win majorities of them um, to um, build a winning Republican coalition in all these states, right? Uh, it's it's very unlikely that the Republican Party is going to get majorities of Black voters uh, anytime soon, or Latino voters for that matter, um, at least in a you know nationally speaking. Um, but you don't have to win majorities of them. You can win significant minorities of them uh, to the Republican coalition, and have a winning you know an electorally winning coalition. If um, you know if the Republicans manage to um, you know shift the sort of ninety ten a uh, black split uh, between Democrats and Republicans to 85-15 or 80-20, that's a massive, you know, that's a, an electorally extremely significant uh, shift that puts the Republican Party in a much stronger place. And they could, you know, I think, I think that there's a good reason to think that uh, some of these um, Republican legislators, people like Marco Rubio, who is, of course, from Florida, um, and has a large Latino constituency and so on, are going to be thinking about it in those terms and think about this as an opportunity to sort of sweep up a lot of these um, uh, non-white voters who uh, Democrats have sort of assumed to be in their own coalition because of demographic destiny. You know, there's just a, a kind of a, a rigid and if you like reified thinking around race um, that was perfectly encapsulated, for instance, in Biden's uh, quip, you know, if you know, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's this sort of insane, <laughs> you know, um, expectation around um, party affiliation and race. Uh, but it's just not the, you know, um, the Trump, the, the Trump America of the last four years has um, looked like a growing economy. Um, people are overall better off than they were four years ago, uh, in particular industries in places like Texas, where you had, um, you know, booming oil industry, you have a lot of Latino constituents, Latino voters who are benefiting from that, um, uh, you know, that rising investment in the oil industry, um, a layer of um, people who are making a lot of money as independent contractors, uh, you know, uh, adjacent or adjunct to that industry. Um, and you have this story play out over and over again in all kinds of ways throughout Trump's America. He, um, in some ways, flouted economic orthodoxy in the Republican Party around deficits and um, uh, trade protectionism and stuff like that. And um, that and, and interest rates, you know, monetary policy. And that paid off enormously and made people better off. Well, if the Republican Party keeps doing that, I think they can continue to 
feel pretty confident that um, they can pursue a sort of more diverse and more more working class uh, coalition with, through the sort of right wing Keynesianism, if you like. Um, let me just finally ask you about um, what happens to the the hardcore Trump uh, element. Um, do they? Uh, I mean. There are, there are some signs I've seen anecdotally that they are becoming um, demoralized. So I've seen, for example, that the QAnon conspiracy theory, which was at the real hard edge of the Trump movement, a lot of people are being disillusioned by that because its claims uh, are being shown not to be true because we're days away from the inauguration of Joe Biden. And he hasn't been arrested. Uh, <laughs> um but do they do they sort of fragment and splinter off? And I suppose this is the danger is there, a, is there a danger that some elements of that movement in desperation, in isolation, you know, uh, cut off from their expectation of final victory, that they engage in some quite dangerous um, activity now that they sort of, well, you know, I mean, the Trump, the, the, the Trump period in office has been pockmarked by, uh, you know, violent incidences in America and also around the world, um, partly at least related to his phenomena, part of his broad milieu. Um, is there a danger of future kind of outrages? Uh, yes, I mean, absolutely. I think I think that what we're likely to see um, in the um, in the short term is in particular, so I should say, I, I don't, I think people conflate two things. One is the increased risk of um, sort of dangerous activities by the kind of hardcore of the far right. And the other is uh, an actual increase in strength, uh, you know, and organizational capacity of the far right. And I don't think those two things are the same. I think we're, I think we're less likely to see um, the far right come out of this stronger, but I think we're likely to see um, more violence, you know, in part as a kind of flailing, desperate um, move. Um, and I think we're likely to see even, for instance, all kinds of like lone wolf attacks, uh, kinds of things. Um, there's a, you know, the, the sort of fallout from this Capitol riot is, um, is uh, interesting and contradictory and we're not sort of, we're not sure how it goes. Um, but, you know, back in, um, Oh, I don't even remember what year it was anymore, but the Charlottesville incident um, uh, with the far right um, protecting a uh, Robert E. Lee statue from removal and uh, there being a large sort of anti-far right, anti-alt-right demonstration in response and so on. And Heather Heyer was killed by a, um, a far right attacker. Um, people after that event, people on the left thought this is a real show of strength for the far right. This is a, a huge mobilizing victory and they're going to build out of this. But Charlottesville was a disaster for the far right. Um, it totally, in the short term anyway, it totally disrupted their organizational networks. A bunch of them just left politics forever um, because they were doxxed and, you know, exposed and fired from their jobs and became, you know, essentially blacklisted, you know, untouchable. Um, and it was a, in that way, it was a it was a failure for the for at least the uh, sort of long-term organizational prospects of the far right. I think I think this is has some similar tendencies in it. You know, the FBI is going all around the country finding these people um, and uh, arresting a bunch of them, and they're coming up on charges that are serious. A lot of them are looking at you know time in federal prison. Um, uh, 
even a few uh, legislators are going to have to be investigated. Um, Ali Alexander, who's one of the main organizers of the January 6th event, has named names. It's um, uh, two, two representatives out of Arizona. Um, uh, I guess it's Biggs and uh, uh, somebody else I can't remember the name of. Um, and uh, I think I have them up somewhere. Anyway, I can't remember their names. Um, no, it's Biggs Brooks, uh, Biggs Brooks, and uh, Gosar. Those are the th those are the three named. Well, these people are going to be investigated, right? And this is and if and if these people are brought up on charges and convicted, um, you know, I think it's a signal to the right that uh, you know their their stunt was a, a sort of devastating loss. On the other hand, right, uh, you know, and I, I think the the Intercept has done some good reporting around this in the last couple of days, but the um, there are sections of the far right which are seeing this as a, a radicalizing opportunity for people who are on some different part of the fringe <laughs> who are becoming disaffected and disillusioned, um, but are there for the taking, right, for some other kind of project. And so you have these sort of um, elements of the far right that aren't Q, right? So they're, they're not disillusioned in the same way because they never shared the, the delusions of Q. Uh, so, you know, one thinks of like the Proud Boys or the Boogaloo Boys or whatever, and the Boogaloo Boys, right, are um, trying to, you know, foment a second civil war and are, these are the guys that uh, show up to demonstrations like armed with rifles and, um, you know, flak jackets and under their jackets, they have like Hawaiian print <laughs> shirts on. Um, uh, uh, these people are, are all over apps like Signal and Telegram, scooping up everyone who's been getting thrown off Parler um, and forming new networks uh, uh, around, um, you know, these other kinds of extreme far-right politics. And they sort of see the whole thing, uh, you know, the whole incident from the 6th as a kind of a necessary element of the acceleration of the contradictions, if you like, uh, that from, from which they're ultimately going to have all kinds of opportunities to uh, to carry on in their project. So there is a there is a if you like a dialectic of radicalization where I think elements of the far right are going to be repressed. You know they're going they're going to be directly um, repressed by the coercive apparatuses of the state, and some organizational networks are going to be disrupted and and uh, uh, scattered and uh, crushed, and others are going to you know, a huge, most of the members of the far right were nowhere near the Capitol on the 6th and they can carry on doing it. You know, they're not under any real threat immediately anyway from the FBI or other law enforcement. Um, and as far as law enforcement is concerned, by the way, a bunch of them are members of the far right in their, in their uh, you know, when they're not on duty, if you like. Um, and so there are these kinds of existing, I think, put it this way. I think often people talk about the alt-right or the far right in America as this kind of um, symptom of, of uh, extreme atomization and isolation. I don't think that's quite right. I do think they have civic associations among themselves. Um, many of these people still meet in you know, churches. Uh, they have uh, online forums, which maybe are a, 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 you know, a pale shadow of a real organization, but nevertheless, it does serve a civic role. It does the, you know, it serves the same kind of basic function. Um, you know, they talk to each other, they have a, a shared kind of experience of lived soci sociality that informs their politics and they 
um, they work on each other as political actors. And I think that they're not um, as isolated as we would like them to be, as a matter of fact. And so there is, there is this, I think, kind of dialectic where you are gonna have a, um, in the short term, kind of a scattering of the forces of the far right uh, and some key people sort of picked off by the FBI, um, people doing time in federal prison and so on, people scared, uh, people sort of discouraged by the failure of Joe Biden to get arrested and you know all that sort of stuff. But on the other hand, you're going to have people who see this as an opportunity, um, who are uh, sort of driven further into these kinds of networks um, and who are going to be um, uh, emboldened to carry out um, you know, either, either lonesome or small group kinds of attacks, um, or, uh, you know, actions of various kinds. And so I think we're going to, I think we're going to, we should not be complacent about the far right. Um, neither should we be, um, uh, excessively panicked about, uh, about its, um, uh, you know, organizational strength for the, for the, uh, medium term. Okay, uh, Michael, thanks very much for your thoughts uh, on that. It'll be an interesting and perhaps a difficult uh, couple of months uh, or longer to come. But uh, yeah, thanks very much for your insights. Yeah, no, uh, no problem. So pleasure as always. And uh, people interested in what we were discussing on this podcast can go to source.scot where we uh, are covering the inauguration and all these wider debates around uh, American politics and their implications for the politics in the in the wider Western world, in, including the UK and Scotland. Um, so thanks very much, and I'll speak to you all again soon.